Welcome back to Sessions by The Herb Life, a weekly podcast that brings you a new set of hosts every single episode discussing everything cannabis. Our aim is to highlight the tremendous efforts of women living, working, and playing in the cannabis arena, while also giving you a direct line into the conversations that are changing the landscape as we know it. My name is Tiana, and I am the session's facilitator, and this episode we are joined by Jenna Valeriani and Sarah Hanlon, who set out to discuss the pitfalls of the unfolding brick-and-mortar distribution system in Ontario. And they got well into some more of the challenges and failings around the emerging framework. I have to say, one thing I love about the cannabis industry is the diversity of voices. While it's not perfect, I often see people with different skill sets, personalities, life experiences really gelling on cannabis because it's a theme that seems to permeate so many people's lives. Cannabis, bringing communities together. Maybe that should have been the episode title. Anyhow, Jenna, who recently was appointed CEO of Niche Canada, is a fierce advocate for patients and has some great insights into the failings of the current framework. Jenna has worked in public health, focusing on drug and alcohol reform for quite some time. I believe she's been working specifically in the cannabis industry since 2013. Now, she's actually an East Coast native and has been living and working in BC for about a year now. So in her words, she's been quite insulated from the lagging developments in Ontario. Thus far, there are no brick and mortar stores yet open in the province with an estimated date of April, but nothing has been confirmed yet. Enter Sarah Hanlon, outspoken cannabis advocate and for this episode, the eyes and ears on the ground in Ontario. Aside from her work as a vocal cannabis advocate, you might also know Sarah as a winner of Big Brother Canada and popular media personality. So this episode highlights the impact of poor accessibility for medical patients, lack of education for consumers, and the contentious issue of what constitutes public health when it comes to regulating the legal cannabis landscape. Interestingly, one of the main points about harm reduction was raised, but not for the community. Actually, it was applied to cannabis patients who seem to have fallen by the wayside when it comes to the emerging policies. For many people, cannabis is a lifeline, and already we've seen the system undercutting patient supplies and increasing costs, pushing consumers towards the black market. Policymakers are yet to establish a viable alternative to defuse this ongoing issue. Thus far, attempts to integrate cannabis into a legal framework have fallen short of expectations. The failing of policymakers to accurately consider the impact of a functional system for consumers will inevitably be the downfall of the legal system. That is, of course, until we give people better access and education at reasonable prices. So this was a super interesting episode to me as I really had quite little understanding of what went into developing the framework and was rather surprised to hear how little of it was informed by the people who live and work in cannabis. Before we go any further, of course Sessions is made possible with the help of our awesome sponsors. Are you thinking of growing your own cannabis? Well, grow organically with Sonoma Seeds. You'll find the best cannabis strains from around the world at sonomaseeds.com. Hemper, it's the best 420 subscription service and online head shop. Their experts handpick 10 items every month to pack into your Hemper box, delivering $100 of value for only $29.99 right to your door. All boxes are shipped in plain packaging since Hemper values your privacy as much as their own. Visit hemper.co for more info. 
We're also giving away some prizes to reviewers each week, get a chance to win a copy of the Herblife magazine, which was just released by the way. And you can get your copy online at theherblifestyle.com featuring some great articles from some very talented writers, including myself. So make sure you leave a review. Remember when leaving a review, leave your handle as well so that we can actually get in touch with you. At the end of the season, we have a grand prize giveaway of the PAX Vaporizer. Reviews help us build street cred and also gives me a huge boost in confidence. Post your thoughts on whichever platform you are using to listen to sessions. For more great Herblife content, make sure you check us out online at theherblifestyle.com and follow us on whichever social channels we have in common. And now, without further ado, Jenna and Sarah. Sarah. Jenna. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me on here. This is very exciting. I'm excited too. Sorry for all the confusion today. Um, oh, not at all. It's great to hear your voice. Yeah. All right. Okay. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much to The Herb Life uh, for having us here today. I'm your host, uh, Jenna Valeriani. When thinking about who I wanted to interview today, you know, I thought about things like, you know, what makes me passionate about cannabis, who I admire, and the kinds of things that we really need to be talking more about. I wanted to choose a guest I've had really good conversations with in the past but also really has a different set of expertise than myself. I chose someone who I think has been really instrumental in kind of changing perceptions around cannabis um, and, and who p- the people using cannabis actually are through their own advocacy and media work, particularly with kind of the more general Canadian public. And I think a lot of the times we're really all guilty of kind of preaching to the choir. So I think any kind of meaningful attempts to engage kind of the general Canadian public and counter the stigma that is often attached to uh, cannabis use is really, really important. So I'm really excited um, to introduce my guest today, who is really well known in the cannabis community and really doesn't need an introduction because she was also the winner of season three, Big Brother Canada. Sarah Hanlon's with us today all the way from Ontario, and she's a freelance writer and content creator focusing on all things cannabis and pop culture. So thanks so much for being here, Sarah. Jenna! That was the sweetest hey. intro. Oh my gosh, my I'm blushing over here. I uh, you get me. That was like really really sweet. Um and I am honored to be here. So thank you so much for having me. You are someone I totally admire and look up to and are kind of like a goalpost when I think of like how to do things right. So thank you so much. I'm really excited. So how are things going over there in Ontario right now? Oh, well, you know, everyone's super happy about how things are going here. <laughs> Not. Uh, they just did the, the lottery, obviously, for um, cannabis retail here in Ontario. And actually, I'm from Hamilton and they're doing... They voted today on whether they're not they're going to have retail or not. So the vote hasn't gone through yet. I don't think I haven't heard about it yet. Um, so we'll see. So everything's kind of still up in the air on here. It feels like you know not much has changed since legalization, really. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm originally from Ontario. I've been living out here in Van for a year. I've been watching the Ford nightmare kind of like really take hold from a wider lens, I think, than just cannabis. Um, but, you know, really focusing on the development of like workable distribution channels in the province just really reveals, I think, how chaotic things are seeming mm-hmm. over there in Vancouver. Like, I'm feeling a bit insulated over here from supply issues in that, you know, a lot of the dis- dispensaries that, you know, had business licenses from the city before. Um, it's really been business as usual. So I haven't really felt like my personal supply has been disrupted. 
you know, pre or post legalization. But, you know, I know that most people in Canada, especially in Ontario, um, you know, are really trying to find what their functioning distribution system actually mm-hmm. looks like. Um, you know, what has access been like uh, over there in Hamilton? Like, where have you, where have you been accessing? Is it, uh, is it, has it gotten, uh, you know, more difficult or kind of the same? Um, so it seems business as usual. So I have access to just, you know, through the people who I always have. Um, but also I do have my medical license still too. So that helps me like fill any gaps. I need. And then also around Hamilton, I frequent all these dispensaries all the time and they are still bumping and they are like, there's one by my house. And sometimes they have, they used to have this sign. It was $5 grams and it was just like steady flow of people in and out all day. And then I, and I would tell people like, dude, they got $5 grams in Hamilton. Like the government don't even, they, they got nothing on this. Right. And then two weeks later, the sign was $3 grams. And it's not, it's not terrible weed. It's not bad weed. So, and they're seeing like people of all, I like as diverse clientele as you could see, I go in and out of there every day. So, um, it's, you know, very business as usual. And I, I, I wanted to go back cause I appreciate you saying about the Doug Ford thing from a, a bigger scope, because I really do appreciate that. Um, I think, at a certain point, there was like this fantasy for cannabis enthusiasts that he was going to somehow be like this cannabis savior. And I mean, like, yeah. A, I never bought that for a single second. <laughs> and then B, even if that was the case, like, I, I'm not willing and, and will never be willing to like sacrifice other issues for, you know, for cannabis. And so I just, I, I appreciate you saying that because it, it's hard to distinguish all that from itself. It, the, his kind of closed door, non-transparent way of government is like directly playing into how the cannabis thing is going to work out. Right. And so. Absolutely. And I think when he was running too, and, and he started saying all of this stuff around private retail and cannabis, I started thinking to myself, shit, you know, that's really going to charm, you know, a kind of audience that maybe is more of like a a one issue kind of voting, um, you know, approach to uh, what they were going to do. I think people were really sick of win as well. So any alternative seemed like a better alternative. But even the way they pivoted so last minute, you know, this idea that, you know, the Ontario Cannabis Store already had, um, you know, kind of leases being put in place. And then it really felt last minute, uh, you know, like a last minute pivot when the Ford government came in. And I think those residual effects are really being felt now, even with this um, this new uh, lottery, uh, you know, approach, especially just choosing 25 um, shops. But also kind of the timeline that they need to open from here to April is one of the most aggressive timelines I've ever seen for any kind of like movement, uh, especially when there's regulation involved. So that was kind of freaky, you know, and I don't know if, I don't know how those 25 operators are going to make those deadlines. And if that means they're just basically giving up their, um, you know, a big chunk of cash to be able to do it. Freaky is definitely the word. Like I, from what I'm seeing people talk at, like what I see and hear this, I'm just like, I've never seen anything like this. I've never seen regulations in, whether it's alcohol or gambling or tobacco or not that I'm like any expert in any of these things, but like you watch things, you hear about businesses, like you never hear like this kind of Willy Wonka style, which I love Willy Wonka in the movie. Don't get me wrong. I'm all for a a lottery, a fun style lottery, but this is, 
absolutely the worst kind of zany plan you could come up with. And like you said, like the timelines, the money restrictions, the who knows so much of it is behind closed doors. It's just like, really, we still don't know like anything. Yeah. When I heard, when I first heard about the lottery, there was totally a side of me that was kind of like, you know, maybe this kind of levels the playing field in the sense that, you know, now it's not about how much resources that you have or the connections that you have, but quite literally it's a lottery. But I mean, the whole other side of that is, you know, that, Toronto itself could hold 25 licenses. So could, you know, Hamilton could definitely run 25 stores on its own and they would all be busy. Right, exactly. Um, so, yeah, so 70,000 applications uh, that the AGCO received um, and sole proprietorships made up over 60% of the overall applications submitted. So around 30% were corporations. But, you know, there was there was a side of me at first that was really thinking this would maybe be a fairer way to do it, but I mean I think by and large that really isn't the case. I'm not even sure that the the entry requirements were high enough to weed it out those who were serious and those who were maybe less serious. But it seemed like a really easy thing to do. Yeah, and like uh, just because there's there was so it it seemed like one of those giveaways on Instagram where they're like you know, I'm going to pick randomly. And, and, you know, you have no idea how these people are picking anything, you know? And at the end of the day, it's like, oh, it's just, like you said, it, it could have been, even if it was transparent, super fair, even if there are the 25 best places, the 25 most, um, like, in the community, well-rounded, business-oriented. I mean, it's not going to, the access is, that's, there's no way it comes close to what is needed. So setting it up for failure. Yeah. And even thinking about who we don't know really what the expertise of the people who did win the draw actually is. So it'll be really interesting to see how kind of that shapes up um, long-term. And the other thing I've been kind of, well, it just, and and it always makes me come back to, it's just, there is a system in place, right? And you could go to these places like you would a restaurant or whatever and check it out and like whatever they're worried about, uh, selling to minors or if they if testing the weed, they could do all those things. And that seems a hell of a lot simpler than every type of plan that they've come up with and continue to kind of come up with. Right. Absolutely. And, and also from my perspective, I was kind of looking at that being like, why not let the OCS open their 40 stores to start out with and then do a public private hybrid model and then introduce your, you know, your, your licensing to private stores as well, just to have kind of kept things on track. But instead, I can't imagine how much money the OCS dumped into brick and mortar stores only for that all to be rescinded. I know like on the educational side, they were doing a lot of stuff for in-store um, education. And that just simply means that there was a lot of money being dumped into all the Mm -hmm. different areas of what it means to have a brick and mortar store. So, you know, I think we were all really jazzed to see it open up to private, but I'm not really sure like throwing out everything that was kind of created or built kind of before then was really the right approach. You know, you know, when you put it like that, my cynical mind goes to, well, you know, now this new government can say, look how much money the old government wasted on this and that, you know, in the next fiscal quarter, it's going to be there is all this wasted money when, you know, they had a direct hand in that. And, you know, that's the way political parties have been doing things for ages. And that could have been, it's the sole intention, you know? So it's, 
frustrating. And you're right, like, they have the LCBO still for alcohol in Ontario, which, I mean, I am... You will catch me ranting about the LCBO on any given moment of any given day. I'm from Alberta, so, you know, it's private there. And, hey, who, who would have thought Alberta was going to come out as this cannabis, like, haven and all this, right? How is Alberta killing it? Alberta's killing it. <laughs> it's like, and that's, so, um, I'm speaking at South by Southwest um, in March, and I'm, like, super excited. I'm really nervous. But one thing I think I want to hit on is this fact that You may think more conservative states like maybe Ohio, it was really close to legalization. And so you may think, oh, I'm not going to put a lot of lobbying effort into a place like that. It's more conservative leaning. But, you know, similar to Alberta, I bet Ohio is conservative leaning, but then also loves money in that same way, you know, and. And it's small business, of course. Exactly. And so in that way, Alberta has totally jumped on board, right? In that kind of like free enterprise spirit of yeah. Alberta. So and they were just so much more prepared in a so much more timely fashion. Like when really, you know, we were kind of at, in, we in Ontario were kind of at the beginning of creating what these models would look like. Alberta was already holding seminars for entrepreneurs who were involved, who were uh, looking to get involved in the, in the retail space. So they just kind of seemed like they were always one step, you know, ahead of um, other provinces. And I think it's kind of, you know, it's reflected now. Now, I know there's always kind of these kind of bigger federal top-down supply issues um, that are that are a problem, but I'm not sure it warrants a cap of 25 stores in Ontario. Oh, it's well, but that's I guess it, right? They're so concerned with the black market, the black market. I mean, that's what it all boils down to. And that's what these votes in Hamilton are going to boil down to. I was talking to my city councilor, who is incredibly anti-cannabis retail here in the city, and he's leading a charge to vote no, and it's all about you know, being tough on the black market and the criminal element. And I'm like, but you're legalizing it. So it's not the criminal element. And they're like, it's tied to this. It's tied to that. I'm like, A, not in, not that I've seen. And B, um, then arrest them for those things. Yeah. I never got that argument of like, it's tied to this. It's like, so arrest them for those worse things. Those things have worse off yep. penalties. They'll be in jail for longer. That's what cops, like that's what detectives and DAs and government DAs, looking at law and order. But that's what, um, you know, uh, that's what Absolutely. the criminal justice system should be doing. If they actually think someone is a dangerous offender, they should be getting them at the, you know what I mean? They shouldn't be like, oh, well, this, I'm going to get this person on weed charges because they, like they claim that they're involved in child trafficking and, you know, um, fent- the fentanyl crisis and all these things, right? That there's all these links. So it's just like, I don't want you arresting those people on cannabis charges anyway. Yeah. So that argument never made sense to me. But um, also, you know, there isn't really, there isn't really a lot of data in Canada that supports that dispensaries are involved in kind of other criminal activity. Even with, uh, you know, there was always this kind of discussion around MMAR growers, so growers under the old system, and kind of their link to criminal organizations. But we really have no data, no no convincing data that really, you know, makes that connection. I think that that's just a really easy narrative that enforcement can kind of use and kind of rely on. But for me, I'm always thinking about, I remember seeing this ad for Oregon, and it was this white dude in a suit, and he was standing there, and he just started talking about how it's a win 
if we get more people to go legal. So the whole tagline was like, let's go legal. But it was like aimed at growers. It was aimed at retailers. And it was aimed at consumers, which like, you know, I wish that we had more of a kind of top down lens like that, that thought about how, you know, we're not going to, for example, make all these consumers go legal right off the bat. But if we start giving them kind of better access and better education that over time, we can build up some kind of rapport with consumers and, and kind of slowly over time, you know, kind of have them move to more of a legal supply. And that in and of itself should be a win. You know, focusing on all these criminal, um, so-called criminal elements of, of kind of this legacy market, uh, you know, doesn't really, it's not really doing anything for us. It's not serving us in any way. And, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this because of the you know, police have really increased powers when it comes to um, dispensaries in terms of what they uh, can do. I was just reading, I think it was a, a store in Hamilton where they, um, they sound, it sounded like they actually seized the property. Um, and they were talking about how they could face fines of up to $250,000 with an additional $100,000 each day if they keep operating after charges have been laid. So like it's also it's affecting the landlords who own the property and then, of course, like um, business owners as well. But man, this is we're also talking about facing jail times now as well. And in places like Hamilton, when how many dispensaries would you think are currently operating there? 40 at least. Wow, 40, eh? I was going to say like 20. And maybe it's closer to that. I am always one to over-exaggerate, but at its peak, it's been, you know, <laughs> double that. So, I am I mean, I'm sure uh, Absolutely. at least 20. But yeah, I, I mean, I could not agree with you more. Yeah. And that's completely eloquently said in, in terms of the data and then in, in my opinion and from what I've seen, like, I remember one time I saw, I think it was Bill Player say, well, we're legalizing because currently 100% of cannabis in the black market is tied to organized crime. And and that is laughable and ludicrous. You know, like I know myself, dozens of people who only the only thing that makes them a criminal is their association to cannabis, you know, and at all levels of that. So to, to just actually pretend yeah. that that doesn't yeah. exist is like some kind of free, like how we were saying before freaky government what are you trying to convince us of you know deal in reality and this is reality especially like you said if you look around Hamilton we see it and it's there so yeah and if we're talking about the things that Bill Blair has been saying I mean what I always try, like to remind people is that the arguments that the government are currently using for the legalization of cannabis are easily extendable to all drugs. You know, like we're in the middle of this opioid crisis. We can't get the government to move. And when they talk about cannabis and the reasons why they're legalizing, I just can't fathom why that can't be applied to all other drugs. Like if you if you talk about how the criminalization of drugs or the criminalization of cannabis, it you know has been a lot worse for people than than the use of the drug itself. Or that, you know, regulating and, and um, legalizing certain su substances, you know, uh, ends up in having less harms and is better for public health and public safety. I mean, you know, how do we not naturally extend that to a bunch of other drugs that clearly need, you know, a different approach, different regulation? Maybe it's not legalization in all cases, but those it's just so ironic to me that they can't even see uh, they can't even see the irony in what they're saying when on the one hand, they're like, we're legalizing and regulating because it's the right thing to do. But, you know, we don't have the political will right now to legalize anything else. To me, that's just so it, it's so backwards. Oh, it's 
it's incredibly frustrating. It's like if they were on a debate team, you lost. Like, and like you, <laughs> and like you said, there's a uh, 10, 15 other arguments you could use even to legalize cannabis. But the argument mm-hmm. they choose, the arguments they choose, like, keeping out of the hands of children or and, and have been choosing lately because pre-election they were different. But anyway, that's a little story. But, you know, keeping out of the hands of children, safe uh, drug supply, you know, all those things. That is exactly the arguments. Like you said, that makes even more sense for other drugs, especially in the middle of an opioid epidemic like this, where people are actually dying every day. It's like heartbreaking how many people are dying. And that is a safe, safe drug supply is that, like you said, the, the argument that they make, you naturally extend that out. And then you're like, wait, you kind of played yourself because let, <laughs> let me get this straight. You know, it's like, and again, too, it's like once they admit that criminalization is more harmful than the drug itself, which, you know, multiple counselors, multiple MPs now are on that train how do you ever go back it's it's a slap in the face really it's what it is yeah it really is i think it also comes down to like a misunderstanding and like what public health is you know when i hear bill blair talk about you know that we're regulating and we're legalizing because uh, you know we're using a public health model but then his next sentence is quite literally we've introduced like 40 plus new penalties again uh, you know uh, or cannabis infractions like you know the idea that criminalization and public health are compatible is such a it's the wrong you know, it's the wrong place to start, you know, that that doesn't even make sense if you're a public health person. So the idea that they kind of layer in, um, you know, criminal, you know, that they're, they're being safer and that things are safer because they've introduced all these new criminal penalties is actually at odds with, with public health and how we think about public health. So I could go on forever about Bill because he just really, really pisses me off. Yeah, you're right. And that, that it, it's, it's frustrating because I go back and forth whether that is, you're right, like uh, huge misunderstandings. And, and we aren't there yet as a society about like what those things yeah. mean. Two, I think some yeah. people, maybe Bill Blair being one of them, specifically co-opt that language because they know that that is what, you know, maybe quote unquote people want to hear. And there is so much only so much people can do to push back, you know, and they say at this, these press conferences and stuff, this is the case. And then they turn around and they walk away and you don't really have the chance. And it must be frustrating for you and all the work and the research that you've done. And, and, and these people are just going on, you know, that guy they knew when they were young who smoked weed or some anecdote that their uncle told them or whatever it is. And that's, you know, what's mandating policy. It must be so frustrating. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's just frustrating for, you know, a lot of people, I think from like all different angles, like people who are entrepreneurs have been disappointed. I mean, medical cannabis, cannabis patients are being crushed under the legal system. I mean, there have been a few LPs that I think are trying to safeguard supply, but really kind of medical patients in this whole thing were like kind of a uh, an afterthought, right? That mm-hmm. there was no, I don't know if there could have been a mechanism in legislation that said, you know, if you, if you as a producer take on a thousand patients, you have to have enough product to serve those thousand patients. I don't know if that would have ever been a possibility, but I think it's disappointing that it's not. And I'm not really sure. Oh, and of course the excise tax. So another layer of taxation for, for medical patients. So how would you say the legal pot regime is working for Canadians? 
Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you. I think right now it's not. I mean, I want to get my hands on like arrest data and stuff too mm-hmm. um, and see how that pans out in like six to 12 months because like that's obviously super important and part of it. And, yeah. And, and hopefully like I want to be the type of positive person that says like it's going to take a while to normalization out. But I think there are places that have legalized where like arrests have gone up and stuff as well. So if we're talking yeah. about all these access problems with the medical yeah. system, which there is hugely, and it wasn't like that, like there was huge promises for that, but you're right. How do you kind of legislate that in a, in a system that is so inaccessible? Um, and so I think it, what interests me is like court hearings. And when these things go to court and what, will pan out that way because that's always kind of been the case in the last couple of years in terms of um, like what, where the penalties actually come down hard and yeah. stuff, right? Like yeah. Um, yeah. The, the cops say whatever on, on the news, you know, we're going to raid all these and this is so illegal and blah, blah, blah. But you know, then charges don't stick and places pop back up for legitimate reasons. And so it, it actually makes me think about something like, and cause access and the argument has always been like, if access is bad and you're supplying access, um, that makes sense. And now access is worse. So, I mean, I logically think you could extend that argument and say that, you know, you have more justification to do that, especially if, you know, if you're a city like Hamilton and you're going to deny cannabis retail, which, so I struggle, I, you know, I, I wonder if that, if it does give more leeway, if access is less. And if that's the case too, which it has been in the past, it's so messed up. I mean, the whole system is, is so messed up. And like you said, it's so different. You can be so isolated and insulated from it. Wherever you know, if you're in Alberta or you're in BC or you have good access in, in Ontario, wherever you are. And, and other people are just like, A, they could be in pain or like need it badly for medical reasons, therapeutic reasons, or B, it, it's Canada and we should all be able to enjoy the same freedoms and liberties as each other. I think it's absolutely outrageous. Anything less for a government to strive for anything less than that is absurd. Yeah. You know, and, and just to pick up on a few things you said, like the racial disparities piece is such a really important thing because it's not that, you know, just because we've legalized cannabis now, all of like the racialized police policing just kind of vanishes. So now they're layered with, you know, kind of different ways to kind of get people right. So, you know, here I would say it's a lot to do with kind of those driving laws, right. That you can just pull over and have anyone you want without, um, reasonable cause, um, you know, engage in a, in a, in a test to see if they're under the influence. Yeah. Um, yeah. so, and I've been hearing that a lot of the charges that have been up to now are, are things like not storing cannabis safely, um, in your car. So it being accessible to the driver and things like that, which I would also add, I don't know if we've gotten enough education around what that means. I was having a debate today around whether or not legal cannabis, uh, legal non-medical cannabis needs to be kept in original packaging. So, I mean, if I'm having that debate and I like eat, breathe and live this stuff, then, you know, what, you know, what is the literacy of kind of the general population? And then the second part about, um, you know, cities opting out. So let's say a place like Hamilton opt out. To me, it does, doesn't make sense why the natural like line of thinking isn't that if we don't opt in and have regulated and legal stores, then, you know, dispensaries as they, current exi- as they currently exist will continue to pop up and close down and pop up and close down. And people will continue to use, you know, the same channels that they've been using for years, you know, you know, undoing kind of these patterns of purchasing and how we kind of have all gotten cannabis, you know, for the last 10, 
10, 15, 20 years. I mean, those aren't things that are going to change overnight, but there also needs to be that option. And, you know, I think about like, we're so spoiled in Toronto and Hamilton and Vancouver and Victoria, but like, what about people who are living in like rural you know, Ontario, and you know, they've never been to a legal dispensary or a legal retail store. Um, you know, those are the people that really probably are still relying are going to rely heavily on the online um, channels of access. But whether or not, you know, I think cost is obviously a really big barrier. I went into I went to a legal store here in Vancouver last week, and I bought one gram of bud it cost me 17 dollars oh my god <laughs> i know which like i'm kind of like i'm like okay i'm gonna i'm gonna do it i'm gonna buy it but i'm also just like holy shit if i went anywhere else i probably could have got like three grams for that price you know it's, it's tourist weed right and, yes. and that's fine yes. like i think there's a place for everything when i'm on vacation i would spend 17 dollars for like you know because i will pay what i'm gonna pay for what i can get and so that's U.S. prices, too, that feels like to me. So, I mean, yeah, for once in a while in a treat or something, which I'm, that's the thing, too. Maybe one day it'll get to where it's, like, actually a treat, and that would be nice, too. But, I mean, just the, the access there, like, for tourists and stuff, I mean, it's still pretty cool. I mean, it's yeah. hard for us, right, because we're right in it, right? And we've been right in it. Like, it feels so weird to me. Like, if I could tell, I wish I could just talk to 16-year-old, 17-year-old, 18-year-old Sarah and be like, what do you think? Like, what do you think? Because it's really hard for me to see. <laughs> I don't, I don't, know, never. And I never thought that, like, like um, uh, everyone was asking me if I was going to the Lyft Expo, right? And I was like, no, I wish, I wish. And then I see that, like, my face is plastered and I'm smoking a big, there's like a video of me smoking a uh, bong because I did some videos with Lyft & Co. And that's like all, so I'm like, oh, I guess I am at Lyft & Co. And if I had told like 18 year old Sarah that like, that is what I'd be, you know, I'd be on your podcast here talking about cannabis. I mean, I really, I think she would be pretty pumped. You know what I mean? I think she, yeah. <laughs> she was yeah. even more angry and cynical and like anti-demand than I am now. Um, so she would also, I think, feel all the things that I feel about that, too. But I think also, because I, I mean, I would get excited for any little glimpse of stoner humor, stoner reference, you know, like, you know, remember back in the day when it was like a Tom Petty song was like, yes, and you'd like, look at other stoners. <laughs> and like, now we're inundated where it's like, we hear about cannabis, like, you know, multiple, all day long, every day. And like, that's pretty amazing it's hard for us to step back in because there are still so many problems, especially, and like you're right, that the disparity of the laws, that's what gets to me the most because that I thought, and, and for me, the most important thing is like, I love Cynthia Nixon's whole like campaign for governor where she was like, we need to, you know, legalize cannabis because it's a racial justice issue. And then we need to give back to the communities that have been the most damaged by these racist laws, you know, and that's, flat out the most important thing yeah and even the even their attempts for pardons have been pretty half-assed you know i haven't really seen anything since october 17th on what they just they just kind of said it and then yeah you're right i haven't uh this should be that should be the again that if if your priorities aren't you know the same type of access and then the same type of like criminal justice system for everyone i thought that was the whole point like that would be the whole point for me you know and I think, like, we talk about the wacky things Bill Blair said. He, he said things on such all, all ends of the spectrum. And I think he himself has said that, you know, one of the greatest injustices of the country is the way cannabis laws have been used against people. So, 
I mean, the way he used the cannabis laws when he was a police chief. So it's like, oh man, I know. And pardon, it's going to be it's going to be interesting to see how that actually unrolls because what I was learning recently is that pardons are a really um, shallow form of record relief. That in fact, uh, you know, if if I if I had a possession charge that I got pardoned through this new program, and I was applying for a job or for housing, or if I wanted to apply to volunteer on my kids like PTA at school, I would still have to check that I have a criminal record and then explain that it that it was it's a it's pardoned but it still doesn't remove the fact that you have a criminal record and that's why i think now we're seeing more of a nuanced conversation around pardons versus expungement so pardons i guess only remove the charge from the um the uh, CPIC database, so like the police database, but it actually doesn't like just remove the record completely. So it's really kind of, to me, it seems a bit of a kind of half-assed attempt of really relieving records. And I'm not really sure what it does for people in practice, if anything. So, you know, I'm I'm kind of interested to see how exactly they're going to um, kind of roll this out. What's that going to look like? Is it still going to be an accessible process for like some of the most vulnerable people in the community who maybe like still won't go see a lawyer or, you know, won't be able to get through that process themselves. So I think there are still, you know, so many questions. And I think that you're right. And, you know, when I talk about cannabis policy, I always say, first and foremost, this is a social justice issue. And I think, you know, continually reiterating that is is so uh, is so important and also gets really kind of crushed beneath the weight of what this industry is, what it's becoming and what its potential is going to be. There's just so much, you know, being one of the first federally legal countries in Canada. I mean, there's so much opportunity here, but it's really easy to forget about kind of how we got here and all the people, those laws have kind of trampled um, along the way. 100%. Very well said. (laughs) So I think we're kind of coming up to time here on our sessions podcast. So I want to just thank you so much, Sarah, for um, jumping in and on and um, being so, so gracious and um, being such a great guest today. Oh, no, thank you. My mind is buzzing. And um, yeah, it's exciting. The future is exciting. And it's exciting to know people like you are like fighting for us and so passionate. And thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Well, I'll be back in Ontario soon and we can start putting people in headlocks. Yes, yes, please. Oh, I would really appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, thanks so much for uh, joining us. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in today. Um, We'll hopefully see you soon. A big thank you to the coast-to-coast duo Sarah Hanlon and Jenna Valeriani fighting the good fight for cannabis consumers across Canada. You can find their links and contact details in the show notes. Give them a follow on social media. And while you're at it, make sure you follow The Herb Life on Instagram and sign up to our email subscription where we have tons of great articles showcasing exactly what The Herb Lifestyle is all about. A big thank you to everyone listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Sessions. Sessions by Herblife is a production of Blue Dream Media, produced by Tiana Matliowski and executive producer Jill Pollard.